Well, let us uh, stand. We're going to read from the Word this morning, from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, and a little bit of reading. That's okay. It's okay to stand. Like they say, sitting is the new smoking, so it's good to stand. And if you can't stand for that long, please feel free to sit. That's fine. But we're going to read starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. And I can still hear pages flicking, so I'll just wait till hear hear silence and then Okay, you've had enough time. Verse one. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Say wise men. Saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Say king of the Jews. Thank you. For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, this is the puppet king installed by the Romans, a Jewish king, but he's basically under the tutelage or under the rule of Caesar. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. So even though Herod was a Jew, he didn't know the word. He needed to find out what the word said about the Messiah, where the Messiah would be born. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what, type, what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when we have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Ha, 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 ha. Insert evil laugh afterwards because he really didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. And when they heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And they saw the star. They rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. They worshipped him. This little child, this little baby, they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. Say gold, frankincense not Frankenstein, frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So they didn't end up telling Herod where the baby was. Okay. The title of my message this morning is Gold for a King. Gold for a King. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, the word, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the gift 
of your son lord jesus we thank you lord for calvary we thank you lord for your blood that washes away our sins we thank you lord for your spirit which gives us new life it helps us to overcome all sin and gives us the victory this morning lord jesus we just pray lord be in our midst lord anoint me i ask lord jesus and anoint our ears lord as we would hear your word in jesus precious name amen you may be seated praise the lord why don't you just give a hand to the lord once again just thank the lord for all he's done we should be grateful and thankful for everything in our lives amen every time we get up in the morning first thing we should try to do is give the word give the lord a word of thanks thank him for the breath in our lungs thank you for a new day that we awoke we didn't pass away during the night another day to bring glory unto him amen so unlike the images that we conjure and we see in you know sort of books and tradition we always see the image of these three wise men these three magi or magi depending whether you like the noodles these magi these wise men and we we sort of associate that word magi or magi with magicians but they weren't magicians they were just a uh, in persian society the word comes from this word magus which is a persian word and it means a caste in society or level a strata in society of learned intelligent people that were into the sciences and therefore they were into astronomy and they read the stars and that's why they saw the star they said in the east that that meant they were in the east this star was actually to the west of them and so they looked in the sky and they could see that that star was there and they knew what it meant they knew that this star was a sign of this king being born yet tradition tells us there were three of these guys and i guess that was is associated with the fact that there's three gifts mentioned and they've kind of just made an assumption that then there's three wise men but there may have been many more it does not give us a number and church history and tradition has gone on to expand on the story and given a bit more poetic license and embellished it somewhat more by telling us some even names of these apparent three wise men and we have um, Melchior bringing gold we have Caspar with frankincense and Balthazar with myrrh now there's nothing these names aren't mentioned in the Bible there's no name of any of these wise men so we're unaware of what they were actually named so these magi vary you know the depictions of these magi or these wise men vary from the earliest versions and no one quite agree quite agrees on the number of visitors or what their names were there's just all these sort of traditions that open up but in matthew's account they opened their treasures they came to worship and they opened their treasures they opened their gifts and gave them to this young child to this young child gold frankincense and myrrh and these are some pretty expensive gifts these are things this isn't like going down who's got kids anyone got kids young children and you know the deal you get invited to the uh, kids get invited to other kids birthday parties 
And yeah, no, you know that whatever present you're going to buy, within a few weeks will probably end up in the trash or in the garage or somewhere else because the kid will play with it for five minutes, get bored and it'll just end up in a corner of the room somewhere. Say so you head down to Kmart, is it, somewhere like that and grab the Nerf gun or whatever else you grab for this kid. What are we going to buy this kid? You ask your kid, what's this kid like? Oh, he likes, I don't know, this or that. And you try and find it. No, that's too expensive. Not my kid. I'm not spending 100 bucks on this kid. You look for the 25 and under. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. That's a nice price range. We'll, st we'll stick around the $25 mark. Oh, this one's 30. Ooh. Okay, I'll break the rule. And so you buy these presents and there's not a lot of thought that goes into these presents. They're not your kids. They're not related to you. You just don't want your kid showing up to the birthday party empty-handed. You know, and if you can find some $25 present that's really big, so when you wrap it up it looks really impressive and then your kid will feel like a champion and turn it up even though there's nothing just like rubbish in there. Some $10 archery set or something. But these were not those kind of gifts. These were expensive gifts. These, these wise men were wealthy men that had come and they'd come with gifts that were precious. They were precious gifts. And it's also been suggested that in addition to the honour and status implied by the value of these gifts, the fact that this gold, this frankincense and myrrh were valuable items, expensive gifts. Additionally to that, scholars think that these three gifts were chosen for their spiritual symbolism and what they meant about Jesus himself. And I don't know if we've got any slides. I don't know if we managed to get the slides through in time. But if there are some slides, we might be able to jump ahead to the... Uh, yeah, there they are. Thank you very much. We've got the... Uh, the gold which signifies royalty. It signifies the kingship of Jesus. Then we've got the myrrh which symbolises the humanity, the mortality, his death. Myrrh was used in embalming as well. So it's to do with his death. And frankincense not only denotes that he's a holy priest but also his deity. His, uh, the fact that he was God manifest in flesh. But our focus this morning is on the gold. And this idea of the symbolism of the gifts dates back to uh, one of the early church uh, fathers, as they call them, Origen of Alexandria, who lived from uh, 184 to 253 AD. And in his apologetics work, Contra Celsum, he says, Gold as to a king, myrrh as to the one who was mortal, and incense, and that's the frankincense, as to a god. So gold as to the king, myrrh as to one that was mortal, and incense as to a god. So these theories surrounding the symbolism of these gifts all point to God, or to gold representing the kingship of Jesus Christ. They all agree on that one thing, that the gold represents the kingship of Jesus Christ. And because the Magi were coming to hail the new king, gold makes sense as an acknowledgement of royalty. It just makes sense of that. 
if you're honouring royalty, it makes sense to honour them with gold. Gold was valuable, still is, beautiful and long-lasting. Scholars generally agree that the gift of gold represented Jesus as a king with an everlasting throne. Albeit, it was a treasure befitting royalty, albeit royalty in a young, poor, poor family. This was a family that couldn't even find an inn. They'd gone to Bethlehem for a census. And as it would happen, Mary gave birth to this holy child in that city of Bethlehem. And uh, as we know, the tradition says that the only place that they could find for him to give birth to is in a manger or in a feed trough. So he was born in complete humility. You know, uh, it's very rare, back before the maybe the 50s in Australia, work at birth, deaths and marriages, I'll just plug that in there. Um, and when you look at the older birth registrations, most people were born at home. Most little children were born at home. And if a child was born in a hospital, they were usually little private hospitals, and it meant that that child, their parents were probably rich. So to be born in a hospital meant, ooh, you fancy. I was born in uh, King George V Hospital in Camperdown, but that wasn't too fancy. That was uh, just everybody was getting born in hospitals by the time I was uh, getting born. But for a child to be born in a feed trough, now that's humility. Not even in a home, not even in a proper house, but where the animals would eat. And you can imagine what kind of smells would be in that area. Not the most hygienic of places for a child to be born. But yet that was the place where this king was born. In Psalms 21 verse 1 to 5 it says, The king shall joy in thy strength, O Lord, and in thy salvation how greatly shall he rejoice. Thou hast given him his heart's desire, and hast not withholden the request of his lips, Selah. For thou preventest him with the blessings of goodness. Thou settest a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked life of thee, and thou gavest in him even length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honour and majesty hast thou laid upon him. The Bible associates gold with royalty here in the psalm it's stating that god would place a crown of gold upon the king's head a crown of gold upon the king's head but it's interesting that all this talk of gold and associating that with kingship and royalty it's weird that also in deuteronomy chapter 17 moses wrote inspired by God, given the laws of the king. So there were these laws that were actually given in Deuteronomy 17, which is kind of odd because Israel wasn't meant to have a king. When they first came into the promised land, they were ruled by judges. So these are judges like Deborah and Gideon and so on. And the judges got steadily worse and worse. We get judges like Samson. He's always visiting prostitutes and doing stupid things all the time. 
Powerful, yet dopey. Strong, dumb. And not very righteous at all. I mean, it's odd that we you know, sort of venerate Samson quite a lot, but you look at his life, he's a terrible example of what it means to be a servant of God. And yet, so Israel was ruled by these judges and wasn't meant to be ruled by a king. God was supposed to be their king. But here we see Moses, well, in the book of Deuteronomy, God is giving Moses these laws for a king. And it says, it even says, when the day eventually comes that you cry out for a king, just like all your neighbours have, just like all the other nations do, you're going to ask for a king one day. That's going to happen and we'll set up a king. And that did happen. God gave them a king. God gave them Saul. And that didn't turn out fantastic either. But we did see King David, who was a better example, and King Solomon, who, well, he was better than Saul. But we see that there were certain conditions that were given and were expectations that were set by God for the king of Israel for the king of Israel. And these expectations were defied a lot of the time. And one of these expectations was he wasn't supposed to uh, have too much gold and silver. He wasn't supposed to be too rich, which uh, kind of goes against Solomon. So just to give you an idea, in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, it says that, you know, you, when you appoint the king, he needs to be, he can't be a foreigner. He needs to be an Israelite. He needs to be part of the, the tribes, the 12 tribes. He can't be an outsider. It also says that uh, he can't have too many horses and that he's not supposed to command the people to go to Egypt to go and get him more horses either. It's really strange, uh, not strange, but it's... Uh, it's uh, important, I guess, to see that he says, don't go back to that place that you came from, that I brought you out of, to get more horses, just because I guess horses are like a symbol of wealth. It's like today, you know, if somebody's really rich, they have lots of cars. They have loads and loads of cars. They have all these sorts of things to show off. But here it's horses. He can't have too many horses. He can't have too many wives. That's strange. He can't have too many wives. And uh, we know that Solomon, how many wives did he have? 700. 700 wives and a few side chicks. A few hundred of them as well. 300. He's got a thousand. <laughs> He's definitely not meeting the expectation here. He was also meant to not have too much gold, not too much money. He wasn't meant to be too rich, not too much silver and gold. Again, we, don't, we see that Solomon was very, very rich. We see that also he was meant to write for himself. Remember, they didn't have photocopiers in those days. They didn't have mobile phones that could pull out, take the picture. Oh, yeah, you know, now when someone writes something on the whiteboard at work, oh, we'll just take a picture of that and then forget about it. No, um, 
but he was meant to write himself, not get one of the scribes to write it, but he was meant to write a copy of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He was meant to write it himself and study it every day. He was like a Bible school student. He was supposed to be a theologian as well as a king. This was the expectation of a king. And these things were given so that he would not become haughty and proud. He wouldn't start to think of himself better than everybody else. It was almost like a form of egalitarianism. This, this idea that the king was just as, uh, there was just the requirements on him to be a servant of God were just the same as everybody else in the kingdom. You know, and the expectation of his behaviour was meant to be the same as well. He wasn't supposed to live unrighteously just because he was the king. So despite gold symbolising kingship and a king's crown being made of gold, the idea was he wasn't supposed to be this like Mr T kind of guy. Anyone remember Mr T? B.A. Baracus, you know. He had all the gold chains around his neck, you know. That wasn't the idea. He wasn't supposed to be this guy sort of covered in gold and richness and Armani suits and so forth. I got this suit jacket from Target for 25 bucks. So, it might look like Armani, I know, but it's, it's not, trust me. Um, they're not supposed to be overly rich. And biblical records indicate that gold and silver were the, the first and oldest form of currency. Gold was usually used to ensure wealth. It was like something you kept aside, whereas silver was usually used for day-to-day -day transactions, for usual commercial transactions day-to-day. -day. But the first mention of gold in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, where it talks about the land of uh, Pison. And it talks about there that there was gold and the gold of that land was good. That the gold of that land was good. And that's the first mention of gold. So they had this idea of the quality of gold. In the KGV Bible, gold is mentioned 417 times. Silver is mentioned 320 times. And the word money is mentioned 140 times. So money is mentioned a lot less than gold. Not once does the Bible mention paper currency. That's because they didn't have it in that part of the world yet. Paper currency was invented in China, I think about, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, 500 BC or, if you don't know, make it up. Um, <laughs> but it, it was uh, run around in China, but it hadn't reached this part of the world at that time. Uh, it may have been even after the birth of Christ. So gold's rarity, even in biblical times, gold, you don't just like walk down the street and find gold and just like start digging up the backyard and the kids are out there and all of a sudden they find a gold nugget. It, it's rare to find. And because it's rare, it has value. Because it's rare, like a gem, like these other rare things, it then becomes precious. So something's common... It's not usually worth anything. You know, you don't just walk in with a pile of dirt from your backyard and take it to cash converters and go, how much are you going to give me for this? But gold, gold has worth because it's rare. It also 
um, because of its colour, its luster, its resistance to oxidisation. It doesn't doesn't rust or tarnishing. It made it valuable for the making of jewellery and ornaments and these kind of things. The Bible often mentions kings and queens being paid in gold and silver. Not only are gold and silver indicators of wealth, but both in the Old and New Testaments, owning gold is compared to acquiring knowledge or wisdom or faith, which obviously those things are more valuable. But there is a comparison to those things, especially in the Old Testament. In early biblical times, gold was obtained uh, in its native purity from gravel deposits. So they would get it out of gravel or out of riverbeds. And uh, it was separated because of its weight. We went uh, a couple of weeks ago, we went and travelled around New South Wales and uh, went to Gulgong was our first stop. And I was trying to recreate my Year 7 camp for my family. So when I was in Year 7, we went on this camp called Country Link and went around western New South Wales. And we added a few more stops. But one of those places we went to was Gulgong, which was a place where there was a gold rush back in the 1800s, and there you do this gold panning. You know, you get the pan and you put the gold in there, or you put the dirt in there, and you're trying to separate the gold from the rest of the dirt. And because of the gold is heavier, no, lighter, the, no, it's heavier than the rest of the dirt, it will separate out when you're panning the dirt or whatever. I'm, I was used to say, I was taking photos, I wasn't doing it. And I can't remember doing it in year seven. Uh, I was probably giving someone like a wet willy or something. Um, but you separate the gold from the, the rest of the dirt because of its weight. And my son was there showing my wife how to do it and, you know, he's like an expert because he's been on that many camps now where they've had to do it. Turns out, though, the gold they, they put in this dirt isn't real gold. It's just some uh, lead or something that they've uh, painted gold. So, pity about that. Um, we didn't find any real gold. But you can go out to places like Hill End and out in western New South Wales and you can do your own gold panning and go around with one of those uh, metal detectors and who knows, you might find a big nugget and become really, really rich. But this is how gold was obtained in those days. Even in the book of Job, it mentions a gold and a silver mine and its refining operations for iron and copper. In the tabernacle, God commanded Moses to have the Israelites build this tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting, and uh, the former church of this name was what? Grace Tabernacle, the Grace Tent. Literally what it meant, the Grace Tent. And so this tent, inside this tent was all the items. Um, you know, we had the, the altar of incense, the, the candles as well and the, the candlestick, he had the Ark of the Covenant itself as well. All these things had gold layered on it or made of gold. And um, the amount of gold that went into the tabernacle was close to 1,000 kilos, a tonne. A tonne of gold. That's a lot of gold. In Solomon's temple, it was made of over 3,000 tonnes of gold. And the amount of gold recorded in the talents is... Uh, one talent is equal to 34 kilograms. And um, King David had set aside 100,000 talents. That's 
million kilos of gold and one million talents of silver for the temple. The temple's lampstands, utensils, forks, bowls, pitchers, basins, cups, they were all made of gold and silver. There was very few copper things. And the cherubs of the most holy, the altar of incense, even inside their house, they were overlaid with gold. At today's gold price, which is about $2,500 per ounce, so $2,500 per ounce for gold at the moment, the gold in Solomon's temple would be valued at $300 billion. $300 billion. That would have to be one of the most expensive things ever constructed in the history of mankind. Could you imagine, like today, Premier said, I'm going to build this building. It's going to be $300, $300 billion to build. I think the papers would be like, fire him now. <laughs> fire him now. Get him out of there. We're not spending $300 billion. And gold is still valuable today. You know, and uh, tangible wealth is always, you know, uh, gold has always been a better form of holding wealth. You know, many different cultures have had different ways of um, using uh, things of monetary value or commercial value to symbolise wealth. You know, so some cultures have whale's teeth or mats or some cultures had um, big stones. Some cultures used tobacco. Some cultures used cattle. So I had a mate, he was from Sudan and he was getting married and he was saving up. He had to buy like 300 cows for his wife. So he had to pay this bride price and he was just like working for years buying cows. Just buying cows for his fiance's family. So he'd already, he was engaged to her like for four years but he needed to buy all these cows before he could actually have the wedding. Thank God we don't have to do that. <laughs> Buy a ring, maybe? That's, that's maybe all you have to do here. Um, seashells also in some cultures uh, have value. Paper, obviously, in our day today, or just numbers on your phone. <laughs> How much do I have in the bank today? Oh, there. There's no real money. There's no physical money anywhere. It's not sitting in a little compartment in your bank. Well, this belongs to, to Kelly. <laughs> No, it's just numbers on a screen. Yet gold, it has substantial value. It has real value. And it lasts. In Revelation 21, 21, the great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. Can you imagine that? Gold that is like transparent glass. In today's economic system, physical gold and silver have become more relevant. There's no currency that uses gold as a standard anymore. All those currencies used to be based on a gold standard. So now there's nothing really to, there's nothing tangible that currencies sit on in, to determine their value. And in times of economic uncertainty, people generally rush to buy gold. So I remember the global financial crisis that occurred back in 2007, 2008 and led to a recession that lasted for a few years after that, they asked uh, Warren Buffett, who's one of the uh, richest men in the world, this was right at the beginning of the, the crisis, just as the subprime loans all started to yeah, um, go under and all these things were happening. They asked Warren Buffett, 
What are you going to do in this global financial crisis? What's your advice? And he goes, I'm going to buy gold. He goes, I'm going to buy gold. I wish I had money then to actually buy gold <laughs> because gold at that time was about $700 an ounce. By the end of 2012, it had gone to over $1,500 an ounce. So it had more than doubled within a few years. So far more uh, value for money than the real estate market, for instance. So in Sydney real estate, uh, the real estate market in this city generally doubles, and uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, just looking at the real estate agent there. But um, real estate in this city generally doubles every 10 years. But, um, wait, we'll go, Anthony, 10 years, that's right, so the real estate agent. So, but this gold had doubled within the space of five years. Gold had doubled in the space of five years. So it, went, it started to cool after 2012. Now gold this year went over $2,500 an ounce, so $2,500 an ounce. Since 1999, Gold has risen by 555%. 555%. So real estate uh, prices in Sydney have risen by about 200% since 1999. So they've doubled, uh, doubled and then doubled again, sorry. But gold has risen at twice that rate. So gold has value for human beings. Even though... I don't know, if you had an ounce of, if you had like a big bar of gold at home, what are you going to do with it? Can't do much with it. You ever tried to pick one up? I remember going to Expo 88. Did anyone go to Expo 88 in Brisbane? No, you weren't even old enough. I remember going there when I was a kid and they had this gold bar in a, like a little glass case or something and you put your hand in there and you have to try and lift the gold up. Can't can't do it. It's like impossible. It's so heavy. So I don't know what you can do with gold, but for some reason human beings love gold. And they'll pay a lot, a lot of money for it because of its value, because of its luster, because it doesn't rust. Gold is used for many things. They plate like, um, uh, what do you call it, like AV cords and all these kind of things with gold to make them like not rust and work better. But the Bible says in Psalms 19 verse 10 that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. It rhymes. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. So it's more better to desire the fear of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord. We need to make sure that we don't get carried away with chasing the riches of this life. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses, but we need to seek that treasure that cannot be eaten by moth, that can't be destroyed by rust, that can't be stolen by thieves. We need to seek after that treasure, amen? A treasure in heaven, we need to build up a treasure in heaven by doing things in this life that are going to benefit the kingdom of God. Amen? We can't get carried away with trying to build up treasures in this life. 
but we need to build up treasures in the life thereafter. Amen? And how do we do that? We do that by loving God and loving people. By sharing the word of God. By sharing our time, talent and treasure for the kingdom of God. By sharing love, kindness, generosity, even giving to the poor, giving to those that are in need. These things, that is the treasure we should be seeking after. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So I've got 10 minutes. Do I even have that? I don't know. I don't know what my time is. But um, just going to touch on, on Christmas and we're heading into that time of year and um, the time of year that the world recognises and, and even calls Christmas, although now it's starting to even get away from that word being used and everything's like happy holidays and this kind of thing. But early Christians began to celebrate the birth of Christ close to the new year, almost in... It was in opposition to Roman society at that time who were, most of them were celebrating the festival of Sol Invictus and uh, all the other societies. Like the significance of this time of year is that in the north, in the northern hemisphere, it's the winter solstice. So it's the shortest day of the year. So if you go to places like Iceland, which are really close to the North Pole, the, the sun will get up at like, I don't know, 11 o'clock and go down at 2 p.m. And that's your day. <laughs> oh, sun's up. Oh, sun's down. Yet in Australia, we have summer solstice at the same time they have winter solstice, which means that it's the longest day of the year. And so the sun will get up, I don't know, 5.30 in the morning and not go down until, you know, 8.30 at night. And the further you get away from the equator, the more those differences occur. So if you go to Iceland during summer, during July or June or whatever, in summer solstice, the, the sun will get up at like 2 a.m. and it won't go down until 11 p.m. And there's no real night. There's like a bit of a glow on the horizon. And in some places, the sun doesn't even go down. So in places at the top of Norway and Greenland and places like this, the sun will get up and it'll sort of skirt along the horizon and then just start going up again. So you have a day or a few days even of where the sun doesn't go down. And then in winter you have a few days where the sun never comes up. You have darkness for like a couple of weeks in some places. And so this is significant for ancient cultures because that was how they measured their calendars, by measuring the length of time that the sun was up and that was how they determined their solstices. And they measured their year based on the solstice and even the Jews did it as well. Although their year then began to start with the exodus because God said, that's what you're going to do. And so we see that, you know, a lot of societies were celebrating their festivals at this time of year. But the earliest known accounts associated with this time of year, and, and in particular December 25, 
as being a, as being a Christmas festivity goes back to the church father Arrhenius, who lived from 130 AD to 202 AD. So he quotes this in the late 100s, like about 180 AD, where he connected Mary's conception of Jesus with the, the Passion Week or the, the Passover. And uh, using March 25 as his, as his date, Arrhenius calculated forward and came up with uh, December 25 has been nine months after that. Uh, Hippolytus, another church father from 170 to 236 AD, specifically noted December 25 with the birth of Jesus, though he may have made his decision based on Arrhenius's decision. Sextus Julius Africanus, another early church historian, he maintained that Jesus of Nazareth was conceived on the 25th of March which the Christian church came to celebrate as the Feast of Annunciation. And with the term of pregnancy being nine months, Sextus Julius Africanus held that Jesus was born on 25th of December. He also links it to um, the appearance of Gabriel to Zechariah on the observance of Yom Kippur in the Gospel of Luke. And this occurs around October. And so they kind of say, well, John the Baptist is six months older than... Jesus, so therefore they sort of work it out to be December 25. We don't really know what date Jesus was born. These are all just theories by guys that lived a long, long time ago. But, you know, they did their homework and they kind of came up with late December as being that time. The earliest mention of Christmas observance, although it doesn't list what date they observed it, is from 129 AD where there was a decree by a Roman uh, bishop at that time, in the holy night of nativity of our Lord and Saviour, all shall solemnly sing the angels' hymn. So that was from 129 AD, not long after the Bible was actually written. In 274 AD, the Emperor Aurelian made a festival for Sol Invictus. This was a Roman god, the god of the invincible or unconquered sun. And there was always this God soul within Roman history, but they'd invaded Syria a couple of hundred years and they'd sort of started to adopt the, their sun God, who was named Mithra. And uh, they sort of started to blend the things together. And while some writers believe this may have influenced the date of the Christian feast of Christmas, and that seems that when you do, you know, just sort of like superficial research, and you just look, they'll go, oh, that date was made because that was the date of Sol Invictus. And it's like, but actually if you look into it, that's not what occurred. That was the date that was officially made by Constantine after, but the Christians were already using that date as their, as their celebration hundreds of years prior to that. And uh, if we see historians such as Louis uh, de Chesney, Hieronymus Enberding, and Thomas Talley, they, set, they maintain that the Christian feast of Christmas was already being celebrated and that Aurelian, the emperor, the Roman emperor, established Dies Natalis Solus Invicti, the celebration of Sol Invictus, this sun god. He, he made it on the, 25, the 25th of December in order to compete with the Christian feast of Christmas. Because prior to that, the feast of Sol Invictus was actually on December 9th. Or December 11, sorry, 
and the sacrifice of Sol and Luna, the sun and the moon, was on August 28. So they never, prior to the Christians starting to celebrate on December 25th, they, just, they celebrated Sol on December 11. So traditionally scholars have said that Sol Indigis and Sol Invictus are two separate gods and then there's another opinion that said it's just a revival of the old sun god, maybe to align with Mithra. But irrespective of whether Sol Invictus was instituted by Aurelian for a festival on the 25th because it's the old Roman god or the new Syrian god or whatever, Aurelian set the date of the festival to Sol Invictus on 25th of December, perhaps to compete with Christians who had already determined, as we had mentioned before, about 150 years after Christ, that the date was the 25th of December. Prior to this, the Christians, their major holiday that they would celebrate was Passover, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even until recently, and in many cultures even today, in many nations that are Christian, Easter is what we call in English Easter and the rest of the world calls Passover, um, like Pascha, Pasquale, whatever, all the other languages. And I'll go into why English call it Easter when it's Easter. Um, but it's the Passover. And the Passover is the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But Christians were starting to celebrate the birth of Jesus even before this, um, this event occurred. And then in 336 AD, the Roman church instituted it and made it official on the December 25th under the reign of Constantine. However, it was already been done well before that. In some other countries, they celebrate Christmas on January 6th because of the difference in the calendars. Now, it really doesn't matter whether you celebrate Christmas or don't celebrate Christmas or what date you celebrate Christmas on. Maybe you should celebrate Christmas every day and give gifts to people every day and thank God for the birth of Jesus Christ every day. But it just so happens we're in a society that now celebrates it on the 25th of December. And it's our one opportunity sometimes to be able to get somebody to church, to be able to share. I remember when I first came to church, I didn't celebrate Christmas. You know, somebody told me the thing, you know, oh, it's about the Roman God and blah, blah, blah. As I just pointed out, I busted that myth. But, um, but... I didn't celebrate Christmas and people thought I was a weirdo. They go, you're a Christian. You don't celebrate Christmas? What's wrong with you? And look, that's fine if you don't, but I used to have to get into a lot of explanation and didn't really have a lot of ground to support my, my belief. But it was the Puritans in 1644 and the early 1500s, they were the ones that start. This was the first time ever in history that Christians started to not celebrate Christmas or actually ban the celebration of Christmas. So in 1644, the Puritans under Oliver Cromwell banned Christmas, but then just a few years later, because of um, basically public outcry, Charles II overturned that decision. So the Puritans were this uh, sort of movement in the Reformation that came along, and they wanted to try and break away from the Catholic Church as much as possible. They were like, we're sick of what the Catholics have been doing, blah, blah, blah. So they were trying to break away as much as possible. So they had a good motive. 
you know, and they were trying to get away from all these indulgences that were occurring in the Roman church, as did a lot of the Protestant churches at that time, other Protestant movements that were going around. They were heavily influenced by the Calvinists. Now, the Calvinists were predestination, you know, like there's only a certain number going to heaven, all this kind of thing. And the other things that the Puritans did was they burnt witches. <laughs> and so this is the kind... And they didn't allow laughter. They hated laughter. Uh, they, were, they looked at that with scorn. So they had some pretty odd ideas. Now, I'll jump ahead, but Colossians 2.16 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of a new moon or of a Sabbath day. Now, if you don't want to celebrate the birth of Christ, that's fine. And, and you know, if you've got um, anything against that, that's fine. But you can't judge anybody else if they do celebrate it because the Bible clearly commands that here. And to celebrate the birth of Christ is just that. If we're celebrating the birth of Christ, we're not doing all the other stuff that might be associated, getting caught up in all the commercialisation and so on and so on, then it can only be good because you're celebrating something beautiful, the birth of Jesus Christ. Amen? He's the King of Kings. Amen? And I'm skipping ahead, but, you know, the term King of Kings, King Darius I was the great king. He called himself King of Kings and King in Persia because they would take over other countries that were ruled by kings, other city-states that were ruled by kings. And therefore, that made him a King of Kings. And so if I can see those old inscriptions on the board, we've got one from the city of Van in Turkey where Xerxes, he wrote that he was the great king. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of provinces with many tongues, the king of this great earth far and near, the son of Darius, the Achaemenian. And also we see uh, Xerxes I, son of uh, Artaxerxes as king of kings in the book of Ezra. Chapter 7, verse 12, where it says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest. Nebuchadnezzar even referred to by Daniel as king of kings in Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. But there was a king that Daniel prophesied that was coming. A Messiah, the prince, amen, who Zechariah prophesied would come riding on the foal of a donkey into Jerusalem. He would come, this king of kings. And they knew that when he came into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, on that foal of the donkey, that this was the king of kings, that this was the king that comes. That's why they started tearing off the palm leaves and putting them down in front of this donkey that was walking into the city. That's why they started to celebrate and cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us now, because they recognised their king was coming. Jesus was tempted by Satan. Satan said, why don't you bow down to me and I'll give you all the kings, uh, kingdoms of this world. But Jesus didn't just not give in to that temptation because the word of God says worship God only. But he knew that God was going to give him those kingdoms anyway. Amen? Because he was about to go to the cross and be made Lord and Saviour. Amen? If we could be upstanding. Even Herod recognised that this child that was to be born was a great king. 
that this was the Messiah, that this was going to threaten his leadership. If there's a leader, Jesus is their king. If there's a king, Jesus is their king. If there's a queen, Jesus is her king. Any president, Jesus is their king. Any premier, Jesus is the king. Any emperor, Jesus is their king. He is the king of kings. Amen. Revelation 19.16 says, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Bishop Downs talked about the importance of the lordship of Jesus. He is the Lord of lords. You know, when they had opened their treasures and they presented unto him these gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. If he's our king, we must too bring him our gift, the gift of our life. Amen. All the time, the talent and the treasure we have, we need to bring before him whatever is of value to us, whatever is of worth to us, we need to bring it before him. Amen. He is the king of kings. Is he our king though? Have you made him your king? Are you obedient? Is he in rulership over your life? If we are a royal priesthood, he is still our king. What gift are you going to bring him? If we make him king, if we give him our best, the gold of our lives, then he will give us something more precious than gold. His love, his mercy, his grace. And he has a gift that is more precious than gold for us, the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you have not received the gift of the Holy Ghost, I invite you to come this morning. We can pray with you. You can receive that gift this morning. A gift that is more precious than gold. A gift that will give you eternal life, power over sin, connection with God. You can have that gift this morning. He is the King of Kings. Amen. He was given gold because He is that King. They recognised His kingship. Even Herod recognised His kingship. Will you recognise Him as King this morning? Amen. Will you come and spend some time and bow before the King, worship Him and give Him your gifts this morning? just as those wise men did 2,000 years ago. Hallelujah. The altar is open. Come and spend some time with the Lord.